I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and we've got to f f f friday Coming up on today's episode of the podcast, listeners with long memories might actually remember way back in December, we had a conversation with Finkelvich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich, you can hear them on Tuesdays, about the influence of David Davis on British politics. We discussed whether there was even a doctoral thesis in the influence of David Davis on British politics. Well, uh, it's taken us a while, but this weekend marks 35 years since David Davis became an MP. So we'll hear from him on this little sort of life and times of David Davis. The ups and downs and his transformation from rebel to minister to whip to rebel to cabinet minister to rebel again and everything else in between. So that's going to come to our big thing. Uh, in a moment, we'll have the columnist panel. But first, as it's Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned at the start of the week that several Tory MPs over the Jubilee weekend had had enough booze. Um, well, and you can hear it, there is really quite a lot of booing, actually. Wow. A substantial amount. The Dean Doris knew who we should be thinking about. The Conservative Party donors have said themselves that they aren't going to support the party if, if the Prime Minister is removed. Yeah, never mind the parties and the fines and the lies. Will somebody just think of the donors? We learned that when Tory ministers said that no more than 100 MPs would vote against the PM, their maths wasn't very good. And the vote against was 148 votes. We learned that Tory MP Adam Holloway carries his iPad around so he can complain about Newsnight's graphics. This programme that I'm on now was showing pictures of him looking like Hannibal Lecter at the beginning. We learned from Dominic Raab the key cabinet line to take. I think we draw a line in the sand after this vote. But is that sand on a beach? And if he's at the beach, there's only one thing we need to know. The sea was actually closed. We learned that Tory MP Matt Vickers is so desperate to get away from all this he thinks he's a train. Choo-choo! And then we learned this from the Labour MP, Ian Lavery, in the Commons. We've got seagulls the size of jumbo jets. Maybe the seagulls can help Priti Patel following the shocking news this week that her Rwanda flights are struggling to take off, which suggests she's subcontracted the policy to EasyJet. And never mind the health of the Prime Minister, we were told by number 10 that this was Health Week. Saucy Keir Starmer decided to do the government's job for them and ask about that at PMQs. Oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, Keir. So in Health Week, Boris Johnson gave a big speech about um, housing and asked the big question the country's facing right now. Why do we have a tariff of 93p per kilo on Turkish olives? Uh, Turkish olive oil. Elsewhere, his main message was mostly... Bananas. He's not wrong. 
Right, that's what we learned this week. Let's now get the take on the news from our columnist panel. And on a Friday, it is, of course, Formel. It's Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. The Columnists with Formel. James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Yes, 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 yes. We say good morning to James Forsyth. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. And we say good morning to Melanie Reid. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Matt. Now, James, nice quiet week in politics. Not not much has happened uh, this week. It seems sort of slightly extraordinary. We began the week with a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister. Uh, and it's not it's barely on the front pages uh, uh, today. Um, but you've used your column today that, that he's not safe, uh, probably far from it. And that actually his ability to get anything done and to change the subject is uh, is severely hampered now. Yeah, I mean, the irony of Boris Johnson's position is he, he's never needed to be bold more than now. But it's never been more difficult for him to get anything significant done. And there are there are a couple of reasons for this. The first is he can't afford to do anything that upsets his own MPs. You know, I think it is a near certainty that there will be another confidence vote either in the autumn or uh, a year from now. Boris Johnson can't afford to lose 32 more MPs before that vote. So anything that of those MPs who voted for him, anything that more than a couple of them don't like is, 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 is very bad news for him. So he can't do that. The second problem he's got is that you know, if you're a minister or a civil servant who doesn't like the idea that he's coming out with, you'll be tempted to just go slow on it and see if there's, it's all changed. I think you'll see this. You know, this right to buy for housing associations. You know, he has to negotiate that deal with, uh, with the sector, with the housing associations. You know, I think that you know, there will be a little voice in the back of their head thinking, well, let's just string this out. And you know, maybe in a year's time, uh, there'll be someone else in the building. And then I think the other problem he's got is because number 10 is under so much pressure, I think ideas are coming out but are out of the oven before they're kind of fully cooked. I mean, you could see that in yesterday's speech, right? Yeah. Because the shit, you know, we've done this, uh, this all this long enough, Matt. That, you know, when a policy comes out and it's unfunded, it is unclear where the money is coming from, that is a clear sign that it has been announced too soon. And, you know, the government are adamant that, you know, no, 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 this won't cost any more money. It will come out of existing budgets. But when you ask, well, whose budget and where, there comes no answer. You know, Michael Gove doesn't want it to come out of his budget because you know, he's already in charge of levelling up and you know, feels that he already doesn't have enough kind of cash for that. And so he doesn't want to take a cut. But, but if it's not coming out of his budget, wh- where is it coming from? And I think this is, this is one of the, the problems for him. And I think, then the, I think the other problem for him is that Number 10 has developed in, in Whitehall a reputation for having a short attention span. So when Number 10 tells a department to do something, the department you know, responds, yes, 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 yes. But they think that Number 10's attention will quickly move on to something else. And so you, know, you don't need to do too much. And I think, I think these factors are all combining to make it really difficult for Boris Johnson to get anything done when he desperately needs to get some big things done so that in a, in, in, in a year's time, he can say to his MPs, look, yeah, look at the things we've done this year. You know, we're now in a position, a better position than we were a year ago. We're more likely to win the next election than we were a year ago. So stick with me. The other thing, that, um, the, the sort of side note, I thought, for the policy yesterday, James, is I just wondered whether the the willingness of of journalists even friendly newspapers to take at face value policies and that, that you know there was a time and I, I was i was sort of chatting with someone about this uh yesterday 
you know, whatever you think of uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, if they're go- if the Prime Minister was going to make a speech announcing a flagship policy, you could sort of take on face value that it had been through a certain... I mean, it wasn't always the case, but by and large, it had been through a certain amount of policy um, wonkery. Like you said, there'd probably be some money there to make it happen. You could sort of take on face value that this was a thing that had been thought through and was and was going to happen. And actually, what became very clear yesterday is that currently it just doesn't make any sense, this this idea of being able to save for a mortgage on housing benefit, because if you have got a certain amount of money in savings, you don't qualify for housing benefit anymore. Um, and there was no money for it either. And so, you know, and so I just wonder whether actually it's going to be even... The, the ideas are going to be more and more half-baked and the willingness of both Tory MPs, but also even friendly newspapers to swallow them is also going to be waning. Yeah, I think it is harder in the, in the situation he finds himself in to get the kind of benefit of the doubt on things. I mean, I mean that, that is one of his big problems. I've always thought that politics is a bit like volleyball, right? It, 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 you can only really score problems on your own. You can only score points on your own serve. So that when, when, you're, when you're behind, it's just much, much harder to make any progress. Because right now, you know, Everyone comes to these uh, press conferences with the kind of questions that you were just outlining, Matt. And, and, while as, you know, when you're riding high and you've just won your majority, people are much more inclined to say, oh, right, that's what's going to happen now. Um, and so this, I think, is, 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 yeah, I mean, you're totally right about one of the things that is going to reinforce the difficulties he is facing. Uh, it's like it's on, like Ellie. bringing up, it's like bringing up a small child, isn't it? I mean, you chaps will know about this. You you you. It's the art. It, it's the art of being a grown up, um, and it's the art of of stalling and ignoring the demands of a small child. If you you know it, what the civil service will be doing now is you sit tight, you ride out the pressure. You know, somebody wants something for Christmas. Somebody wants something new. They've seen an advert on telly. You sit tight. You ride out the pressure. You've got two weeks of hell. Uh, with the demands, and then it, it's all been forgotten about, and you know that you never have to worry about buying that thing or producing that policy. It's <laughs> it's it is it is like it, you know children with small attention span, and and that's the way, as James says so 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 cleverly, it's the way that um, the whole country is going to deal with the whole the whole system is going to deal with Johnson now. I think. But I suppose the point you make as well, Melody, is it's not like a one-off thing. It becomes a sort of ever-diminishing returns. Each each idea becomes slightly more rubbish. The willingness of yeah. people to defend it or even think about it or implement it uh, goes down. The, the 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 amount of publicity it generates uh, diminishes. Therefore, the the impact on trying to turn around his premiership is even more limited. And then along comes another insane idea, which hasn't been properly thought through. And then and then. You're just in a in a in a mess. You know the Rwanda the Rwanda policy is a prime example of this. All of the key announcements for the uh, plan to put migrants on a plane to Rwanda have been made at key moments in Boris Johnson's uh, mm. sort of premiership woes, including last week. Uh, as letters were going in, they suddenly announced the first flights taken off on June the 14th, again with no apparent plan for how, regardless of whether or not you think it's a good idea or or not. Uh, this is what the government says it's going to do, and it's not doing it, and it is unable to do it, and so then people lose e- even more faith in in what they've been promising, Millie. And, and all the time, the clock is running down. Uh, you know, we're we're already getting near the summer recess, and then it's going to be autumn, and and you know, and then we're we're, we're looking at the next election. There isn't just isn't going to be time to 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 implement anything properly. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose. 
James, uh, the people you're speaking to, there just seem to be this sort of um, division. There's people like the last people in Britain who think that everything's fine, at least in public, are the cabinets. At what point do you think some of them might... Because I went on the show this week, we've heard from Simon Hart, Dominic Raab, not... Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're grown adults. They know that what's coming out of their mouth is is essentially nonsense. At what point does one of them say, oh, look, I can't be bothered coming up with ideas which aren't going to happen and then having to defend them in public again and again? Is there, is there a point where, or, or is actually just being in the cabinet better than not being in the cabinet, regardless <laughs> of, 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 what's, uh, of what you're being asked to do? Well, there's that. There's also, I think, an argument that you can say that people feel, uh, and, and it is very easy to be cynical about this, but that people feel it's their kind of duty to, to be there because they think that the people who would replace them would be worse. Now, you know, I can, I can already hear people's cynicism levels r- rising, but I mean, I mean that, 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 that's a consideration. I actually would say it's someone outside the cabinet who is the bigger surprise to me is Penny Morden. You know, she is clearly flashing lots of leadership ankle, yet she is not resigning. And it, it, is, it, 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 it is a surprise to me. Because I think if you're trying to run for leader from outside, from inside government, but outside the cabinet, you would think that you would be like, right, I've got to do something to mark myself out to make myself look different. And the, the, the obvious thing for her to do, it seems to my mind, it, it is to resign. Yet, you know, she keeps kind of walking right up to the line, but, but never actually doing it. It's actually, I was thinking about this. I think the reason that people don't do it is is the sort of he who wields the knife doesn't wear the crown. They're, everyone thinks of Michael Heseltine. But you think, well, well, Boris Johnson resigned and it worked out pretty well for him. You know, David Miliband didn't resign and that didn't do him any good uh, in Gordon Brown's government. Like, it, Although it's, I it's a, you... Sorry. I was going to say, it's a, it's a mixed history. This idea that you... That the person who who pulls the trigger doesn't then get the top job isn't entirely accurate. But yes, but also don't forget the Dean Doris factor here. Um, look at what happened to Jeremy Hunt on Monday. Uh, I think there are some people who do think this, which is you know what what is the Tory party going to want um, if Boris Johnson goes? It's going to want to kind of come back together. And you know I think when Boris Johnson goes, there will be kind of sixty to seventy kind of Boris ultras in the parliamentary party. Probably, you know, a quarter to a third of the membership that, that feel that, you know, that their king has been has been slain unfairly. And I thought what Nadine Doris did to Jeremy Hunt very brutally was to basically say, I'm going to make it impossible for you to say that you can bring the party back together by saying that, you know, those of us who support you know, the Boris Johnson ultras will never reconcile ourselves to you. And I think that that is something that holds some people back because, you know, this contest is going to involve a certain amount of people having to say, you know, I can heal the party. I can make the part. I can show the. I can show the country that the Tory party is a united force again. And I thought what Nadine Doris was doing to Jeremy Hunt was essentially saying, you won't be able to say that. Uh, and although this is going to cause some collateral damage, because you're basically saying that the government, that, that, that after that, a decade of Tory rule, the country was ill-prepared for the pandemic, um, I'm still going to do this because it's going to inflict more pain on you than it is on me. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose I mean, the Nadine Doris factor is probably what we are going to have to live with, with some time. Um, let's, let's, there's a really lovely story that I wanted to talk about, a shipwreck of a different kind. Um, uh, <laughs> HMS Gloucester. <laughs> Uh, a royal shipwreck discovery to rival the Mary Rose. Uh, we're told some, uh, was it 1682? Um, why, why, why did this story catch your eye, Melody? 
Well, it, it's. I think there is a magic, isn't there? In the total magic in the time in the time capsule, the thought of the time capsule under the sea, and that that sort of the mystery and the the perspective that it brings on our on our modern our modern preoccupations. You know, all the history lessons in the world in a classroom can't 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 do do not rival finding the real thing under the sea, and. You know, time slips, doesn't it? When you when you when you put your hands on something, um, if you find if you find a relic in the ground, or you lift a cannonball from from the from the North Sea, and the last person to touch that was somebody who was a sailor on that ship, yeah. you know, nine five hundred years ago. I mean, it, it it's that has a magic. It's amazing. Are you are you similarly inspired, James? Yeah, and I also think it's one of the most fascinating counterfactuals, right? You know, James II is, you know, what led to the Glorious Revolution. Uh, And, you know, I hadn't realised how close he came to dying. And and you can just imagine how different British history would have been if he had died. I also always think about it. I also think, you know, because he is, I think, I I think he has strong claim to be um, the most disastrous monarch in British history. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the fact that he ended up throwing his seals of office into the Thames as he was going to try to escape um, kind of sums him up. And and, and when you think of how 1688 is so the basis for our constitutional settlement, it's remarkable to think how we might not have got there if if he had drowned in, in, in this in this shipwreck. Yeah. It, it, the oh. other the other thing about it is that the ship sank because of him i mean that yeah. you know oh, that, yeah. that's the yeah, you know that the, the, it was him he overruled his officers and he set the course with which ran into ground you know it, it's it's that that that's that somehow makes the story even even more intriguing it's just impossible Another. to imagine that this would happen today, that, that someone would be in charge and set the course, <laughs> which would lead to disaster for all all concerned. It's impossible. And this is a much more, I, I completely agree with you, really. That's sort of, you know, the, the, the last people to touch, you know, the, all that is fascinating. Much more interesting, actually, I have to say, than the story we talked about on the show yesterday about how they're going to rebuild the SS Great Western in Bristol mm. for no, a paddle sit for, for no apparent reason when you've got the actual SS Great Britain, like right next door. I just thought that was a bit weird. Anyway, nice, nice to do a bit of history as well. I think the the worst the the, the worst monarch ever is probably a conversation we could uh, expand on another day. Melanie Reed and James Forsyth there, and of course you can read James in the Times on a Friday, Melanie in the Times on a Saturday. You can read my column in the Times on Saturday too. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the life and times of David Davis. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. Thirty-five years ago this weekend, Margaret Thatcher won her third landslide election victory. Within three years, she would be gone, ousted from number 10. Since then, the Conservatives have been in and out of power, fought numerous leadership contests. In between, they fought over personalities, policies and power, and mainly just fought about Europe. And one man has been there ever since. Indeed, one of just three MPs first elected on June the 11th, 1987, to still be in the Commons, is David Davis. Loyalist and rebel whip, whipped and unwhippable. A man who missed out on his party's top job, brought down one Prime Minister and is currently embroiled in a fight to bring down another one. This is the story of David Davis, serial rebel, a legend in his own lunchtime, the Tories' nearly man who is still spoiling for a fight and looking to leave his mark. Late last year, we debated with Finkelvich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich whether there was even a PhD on the influence or otherwise of David Davis of British politics. So I sat down with him to find out. June 1987 saw Margaret Thatcher secure what would be her third and final victory. It is wonderful to be entrusted with the government of this country, this great country, once again. David Davis, one of her newest MPs, was determined to at least try to behave and toe the line. I mean, I voted with the government day in, day out. In fact, I had the best voting record, except on just the occasional rebellion. And, uh, you know, that would drive the whips off as mad, because, you know, they thought, there's this loyalist Tory. And my whip was David Lightbound, you know, the famous 25 stone, (laughs) (laughs) who would get very cross with me. But generally, you know, very assiduous, worked hard, but just had the odd thing that I decided I wasn't gonna, was not going to be bent on. Um, and the truth be told, if people disagree with me, then so be it. I have no trouble disagreeing with people and staying friends with them. Maybe, maybe it's not so easy the other way around. <laughs> then in 1990, Margaret Thatcher was ousted from office and John Major became Prime Minister. May I say firstly that I'm extremely grateful for the trust that my parliamentary colleagues have put in me and for the tremendous support that we've already had for so many people up and down the country. I hope in the next few years that I will be able to prove that that trust is justified. As intense battles hotted up over Britain's place in Europe and the implementation of Brussels' contentious Maastricht Treaty, Davis was called to turn from poacher to gamekeeper. John Major asked the rebel to become a whip, dragging his rebellious colleagues into line. Back in the early 1990s, the Whip's office was the last bastion of a post-war culture where foot soldiers knew their place and women were nowhere to be seen. And there were sort of two classes of people. There were the sort of NCOs who were there forever, you know, uh, uh, tough cookies like 
David Lightbound, a 25-stone man, ex-professional footballer, whose presence alone <laughs> probably amounted to intimidation. And uh, then the sort of young officer cadets who are flying through, that sort of thing, getting their training. When you arrived, the chief whip would sit you down and tell you what you couldn't do, you know, could and couldn't do, so you could persuade. You know, and that persuasion for some, uh, I never used it myself, but for some was, you know, be careful because, you know, you won't have a career. You won't get made a PPS for the Department for Widgets or whatever, you know, that sort of thing would happen. But what you didn't do is some of the things, well, outright bullying. Um, and uh, you certainly didn't do the sort of assertions that have been flying around in the papers recently. One of the first things I had to do was introduce the replacement to podcast, which almost guaranteed half of the party was against us. We had... I think 88, we counted 88 rebels on that, on that bill. So I had to go through every single one of them, find out you know, what they were objecting to, whether they didn't like property taxes or whether they were worried about widows who had big assets and big houses but no, no cash, uh, or whether it's, it would affect the North or the South, all those things, and work them all out and then get Michael Heseltine to change the policy to fix it, which he did brilliantly, by the way, uh, you know, and giving them credit for it, all that sort of stuff. Um, and at the time it was going on, House of Cards was being broadcast. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing to remember about House of Cards is a novel is not an instruction guide. <laughs> but yeah, uh, at the time, uh, before House of Cards, nobody knew what I did as a whip. After House of Cards, they all thought they knew what I did as a whip, but it wasn't really wasn't really true. Even today, stories persist about what went on in the Whip's office, little black books of dark secrets, which could be released if someone stepped out of line. And, it suggested, a transactional offer of money for this project or that local scheme in return for voting with the government. That's actually illegal. I mean, that, the thing to understand about that is that would be a misconduct. If it happened, uh, and we, we don't know, we've heard the stories, that would be a misconduct in public office. So that's actually illegal. It's one of the things you know, we, we're not allowed to do. What you, what you are allowed to say, you know, you, 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 know you, won't, you may not get promoted, you know, your career may suffer from this. That was, that was sort of almost, it was said to me three times during, during, the, during, the, during the rebellion over glaucoma. And then I was put in the whip's office, you know, so much for that. I think in latter years, it wasn't the case at the time, but I suspect in more modern times, people might be told, you won't get funding for your, for your election campaign. Well, that's a party issue, that's okay. Public money, different game. <laughs> Then in 1994, in the wake of the worst Tory infighting over Europe and with Labour about to install a young Tony Blair as leader and his election-winning machine, David Davis made it onto the bottom of the greasy pole as Europe Minister, where he learned the art of saying nothing. You have to learn the art of the subtle dead bat. The dead bat is easy. You just basically say nothing <laughs> in a great long-winded way. But, you know, you've got to learn the art of doing it without being, being so obvious. Michael Fallon was once known as the minister for the Today programme, precisely because whenever any difficult problem came up, out you went to deal with it, you know. I mean, in many ways, good training. I mean, I got to actually quite like and befriend John Humphreys, you know. Uh, most of my colleagues viewed him as a nightmare. I liked him, you know. Um, I would go. I would make a point of going into the studio whenever I could because you can engage better in a, in a straight conversation rather than down the line. Um, I, I learned the tricks of how, how you learn your brief. In 1997, the Conservatives were ousted in spectacular fashion, losing almost half of the parliamentary party. 
Just 165 Conservative MPs survived. Sensing a period in the wilderness loomed, David Davis spurned a front-bench opposition job under William Hague, instead chairing the Public Accounts Committee, which scrutinises government spending. Briefly Tory party chairman under Ian Duncan-Smith, he later took on the Home Affairs Brief, which would make his own, campaigning against the new Labour government, encroaching on civil liberties. When the Tories lost for a third time under Michael Howard in 2005, David Davis was the grandee who was next in line for the top job. But there was a young upstart, two decades his junior, who was about to pull off a coup. This party has got to look and feel and talk and sound like a completely different organisation. It's got to be positive. I want no more by-election campaigns or general election campaigns when our message is overwhelmingly negative and when we just attack our opponents. I actually think that uh, I've got a very talented challenger here. But uh, we've both got... I hope lots of talent to bring to this uh, to this contest and what comes after the general election. Why didn't I win? Well, because I screwed it up. I mean, the um, well, I made a bad speech about a conference, yeah. right? That was that was an organisational problem, anything else. I just tried to do too much, mm. so my, I only really saw my speech the night night before in the morning. So it wasn't properly rehearsed, all that. So that that gave a trigger for the turn, right? Also, there is there is a systemic thing here that. Favourites almost never win, you know. The front runner had lost it. And part of the reason is that your profession gets bored with the favourites, you know. I mean, just so you're, I mean, people watching your, or listening to this will not remember this, but at the time I was so far ahead that the bookies shut the books on me, you know. It was that, so, so there's that. Uh, and people get bored with it. Um, also, to be, tr to be fair to David, you know, he was a fresh face, he came up with some new ideas. Um, Tories were desperate to find a new formula to win, you know, so basically he struck the right chord. It didn't help that while David Cameron was promoting a modern version of conservatism, David Davis's female supporters were pulling on T-shirts declaring, it's DD for me. Oh, God, the T-shirt. I first discovered this as I walked into the room and saw it. <laughs> you know, one of those times you want the floor to open up and swallow you. But, you know, what do you do at that point? You can't, you can't be rude to the people doing it. You've got to go along with it and smile with it and so on. But there we are. Um, uh, and, of course, it, it stuck around for a while in people's minds. David Cameron let his rival stay in the Home Affairs job, hammering away and often forcing out a succession of Labour Home Secretaries, a job that would be his in the coming Tory government. If only he could have towed the line. On June the 12th, 2008, 21 years and a day after being elected as an MP, David Davis quit, triggering a by-election in protest of what he said was Labour's erosion of civil liberties. David Cameron had no idea. Yeah, and everybody thought I was mad as well. <laughs> there was basically, there was a bit of that, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> I could think of no other way than making a very high drama issue of it, right? Uh, and the highest drama I could think of was a by-election after all. Nobody had done it for 100 years. And, um, and, and, and uh, so I, I told David Cameron I'd like to have a conversation with him after the, the, uh, the debate was over, because I knew we were going to lose. He didn't want to, he, he came into his office and said, look, I've got no time, I've got to go to fund him. I said, David, I, I said I want 15 minutes. Oh, I've got no time. So I just handed him my press release and said, well, read that. You know? <laughs> Unsurprisingly, he was hopping mad. So David Davis won that pointless by-election, but never made it back to the front bench. This is going to be hard and difficult work. A coalition will throw up all sorts of challenges, but I believe together we can provide that strong and stable government that our country needs, based on those values, 
rebuilding family, rebuilding community, above all, rebuilding responsibility in our country. When David Cameron became Prime Minister in 2010, a combination of the coalition and a deep personal animosity, and there was no government job for him. The arch-Eurosceptic had to wait until Theresa May became Prime Minister for that in July 2016. I am honoured and humbled to have been chosen by the Conservative Party to become its leader. This is Matt Chorley taking a look at the life and times of David Davis, who marks 35 years as an MP this weekend. Still to come, his role in bringing down Theresa May and his so far unsuccessful attempts to do the same to Boris Johnson. This is Matt Jolly on Times Radio taking a look at the life and times of David Davis. Now we're heading back to 2016. Work, 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 work. David Davis becoming Brexit Secretary. Well, first off, I have my phone switched off. I didn't think I, you know, I didn't think I was going to be in government. I mean, I've got used to my comfortable seat in the back benches, and I was sitting in. Um, a commons bar, basically a commons restaurant uh, in Port Carly's house with an old chief of staff talking to her about what we've been doing. It was the day of the Chilcot debate. And I had my phone switched off. Uh, and she suddenly said, Twitter keeps saying you're in number 10. And I said, well, I'm not. And she, anyway, she ignored it. And then 10 minutes, she said, Twitter still says you're in number 10. I said, look, here you are. Take a picture of me holding a glass of red wine and, and tweet it out and say he's not, he's here, you know. Uh, and 10 minutes later, she said, they're still saying you're in number 10. And suddenly at this point, I remember my phone's off. So I switched the phone on. There's a great stream of text messages pouring down the page um, from number 10, from so-called Switch, saying, could you please call Switch? Uh, so I called them and said, could you come over at half past seven, I think it was, and it was five to seven. And I said, can you come over at half past seven? And I said, yeah, I can be there in five minutes. No, no, half past seven is fine. So, so I went over, um, went in to see her. I sat I sit down, she said, we're, we're think, um, I'm thinking of putting you in cabinet, David, um, in charge of a department. We're not sure whether we're going to call it the department for leaving the European Union or the department for exiting the European Union. And, you know, I, I have an uncontrollable sense of humour. So I, so I said, oh, well, you're exiting, obviously. Then you can call it Department X. Completely stony-faced. No, no, no laughter at all. <laughs> Even around the cabinet table, this serial rebel still struggled to stay in line. In autumn 2017, he lost his role as chief Brexit negotiator, but bit his tongue. When Theresa May tried to bounce her cabinet into accepting her Brexit compromise at a meeting at Chequers in July 2018, he snapped again. Brexit had been going well at that point, and um, and I flew back down to see her at six in the morning. And you know, I'm I'm very old-fashioned about leaders of the party. I mean, I've never voted against one in my life. I've never put in a letter in my life um, uh, on them. And I also think, you know, if, if you serve in a cabinet or shadow cabinet, you have, a, you have an absolute duty to them. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna turn against them, do the proper thing and resign, you know, that's what you should do. Then you can do it. Before Christmas, she had done, without talking to me, a deal on the Northern Ireland arrangements, the relationship between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. At the time, I said, this won't work. And I did consider resigning right then and there because I thought, oh God, this is a nightmare. You know, she should have talked to me first. It won't work. And it's, in fact, in defiance of what she said. However, I decided to stick it out and try and make it work. So we get to Chequers. I knew the policy she was going to propose was one I couldn't stand. 
I argued against it. I think the vote went about 20 votes to four against me. And I thought, that's it. I then decided, right, I'm going to do this under my own control on Sunday. I was going to watch the Formula One yep. at Silverstone, right? And on the way, I called up the various Brexiteers in Cabinet. I thought, if I issue my my resignation at 11 o'clock tonight, which was the plan to keep it under my control, um, they'll all get rung up at half past 11 and be caught out. So I said, yeah, this is what I'm doing, so you know how you answer and so on. And Boris was a bit taken aback, um, didn't really agree with the policy and said, you know, if you go, if you resign, I'll have to resign. You know, I said, yep, that's probably right. Boris Johnson resigned 24 hours after David Davis. Turning to Brexit, Mr Speaker, I want to pay tribute to my right honourable friends, the members, the members, the members for Horton Price and Howden and Uxbridge and South Ryslip for their work over the last two years. We do... We do not agree about the best way of delivering our shared commitment to honour the result of the referendum. They spent another year on the back benches plotting against Theresa May before she finally quit number 10. The second female Prime Minister, but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. But it was Johnson who went on to the top job and not Davis. The people who bet against Britain are going to lose their shirts because we're going to restore trust in our democracy. And we're going to fulfil the repeated promises of Parliament to the people and come out of the EU on October the 31st. No ifs or buts in the last few centuries has succeeded in betting against the pluck and nerve and ambition of this country. They will not succeed today. We, in this government, will work flat out to give this country the leadership it deserves. And that work begins now. Funnily enough, when he got into, when he got into, uh, into office, as it were, um, we had another meeting and he threw everybody out of the room. And he said to me, what do you want? I said, what do you mean, what do I want? And he said, well, what do you want? He said, if you hadn't resigned, I wouldn't have resigned. And if we hadn't resigned, there we'd be still talking about withdrawal agreement 14 and a half, you know. And, and I said, nothing you can give me, Boris. And yet he remained an independently minded supporter of the Prime Minister. While temperamentally ill-matched and scarred by jealousy, they at least agreed on the big issue of Europe, which David Davis could not have said of May or Cameron. And yet a combination of policy failures, disagreement over the pandemic, Brexit fumbles and then Partygate led to this extraordinary moment in January this year. Like many on these benches, I spent weeks and months defending the Prime Minister uh, against often angry constituents. But I expect my leaders to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. I was quoting somebody which I thought he'd written about. I'm not a great fan of cabals and plots. I, I rather think, you know, if you're going to, it's a bit my, it's my old-fashioned, you know, silly sense of honour, really, um, uh, that, you know, you do it to their face. You know, you do it publicly, basically. I was getting more and more worried that if we went through the normal process, it would take 
years almost to get to get it done. Theresa May, basically, she was dead the day I stood down, but it took two years for the party to deliver that outcome, you know. Um, and I was very worried, you know, we're a couple of years away from a general election, that, that we would have this, what's been going on for the last uh, time, uh, 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 for, for a year or more. Yeah, and so in the first instance I had written to him, um, texted him be before Christmas, early December, saying you're going to have a terrible time, you need to do the following things, use this, the firebreak. Didn't respond. I didn't, not surprised. I was speaking to David Davis not long after that big Commons moment and I asked him what advice he'd give Boris Johnson. What advice would I give him if I was sitting in his office privately? I'd say resign. So that was, that was the thought process, really. And it was simple. You know, understand, I like Boris. I've known him for over 30 years. He was a Europe reporter when I was Europe minister, you know. We're so, I wouldn't say we're, we're not bosom pals, we're different social groups, put it that way. Um, but, but, you know, I've, I've always uh, had a fondness for him and I, and I don't want to hurt him. But the truth is, uh, if, if this goes on, his reputation uh, of, for delivering Brexit, for delivering a big Tory majority, um, for, for uh, getting us out of the pandemic, all right, there were mistakes, but the, but the vaccine strategy was a huge success. All of those things will be forgotten. A bit, a bit like David Cameron now. People don't remember David Cameron's time because of what happened afterwards. If you don't take it in your own hands and resign, then, and you end up being pulled down in a year's time, you'll do damage to the party, most importantly damage to the country. So once again, there was talk of another Tory leader. It's been a while since David Davis has been on anyone's list of runners and riders beyond perhaps his own. So would he still like the job? of being Prime Minister. Oh, God. <laughs> one, one, the, the best piece of advice that I ever given, right, was by Michael Heseltine, who also didn't win, another favourite who didn't win, uh, and he said, he who wields the dagger never wears the crown, so I'd have to be off my head to do what I did last week. <laughs> and have that ambition. There you go. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.